Good morning, Faith Family. It's so great to have you guys in worship with us this morning. We want to make you aware of a few announcements as we head into this new week, especially with the Christmas season upon us, several things beginning to crank up in regards to that. Sunday, December the 11th, just a few weeks from now, a couple things going on that day we want to make you aware about. Number one, we will be receiving Christmas missions that, that Sunday morning. We want to ask you to begin going ahead and praying about how the Lord would have you to give uh, every penny of this offering goes to support uh, Southern Baptist international missionaries across the world. So we'll be joining together that day with other Southern Baptist churches all over America, all over the world, as we're giving toward foreign missions that day. So be thinking, praying about how the Lord would have you to give. And then that evening, uh, that evening we gather at afternoon in the wide gathering. Uh, and so there are sign-up sheets available for you uh, on, on that. Uh, that's gone out a couple of different ways. Number one, uh, it's gone out to your email a link that you can sign up, or as you leave the sanctuary today, there are sign-up sheets on the tables just behind you as you make your way out. If you could sign up and let us know what you'll be bringing. And then after we're done eating together, we're going to go out uh, to some homes throughout our community, a little Christmas caroling. And so I hope that you will make plans to not only attend and eat with us that, uh, that evening, but also to go out Christmas caroling. It's going to be a great evening as we come together as a church family. The last thing we would make you aware of is that this coming week, the church offices close for the day as we start giving together. If you need something or have questions about anything, please ask us before you leave today, and we'll try to get those questions answered as we will all be out of the office next week. So great to have you here today. Uh, as I Alex comes to lead us. Let's prepare our hearts to worship King Jesus together today.
church family, let me invite you to take God's word and join me together in Psalm chapter 99. If you would remain standing with me, Psalm chapter 99 for our scripture reading this morning as we've gathered and we've already sung together of the goodness and the greatness and the grace of our God, the grace that saves us, it sustains us, it keeps us. We're thinking about God's faithfulness toward us as we're singing that and as we come to Psalm chapter 99 this morning, reading here and hearing from the word of the Lord and being reminded yet again of his faithfulness, of his greatness, of all the reasons that we have to praise him this morning, all the reasons that we have for thankfulness today, this week, Thursday, all the days of our lives. Let's hear from the word together in Psalm chapter 99 and as we read God's word together, We ask and pray that God would take this eternal truth and write it upon our hearts. Psalm 99, starting in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. And He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise Your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Church family, would you be seated? And as you do so, would you join me in prayer together? morning. Oh God, we are those who gather, who have a song to sing, who have joy in our hearts, thankfulness in our hearts, praise on our lips. Father, because you are a gracious God to us. Father, we are reminded three times over in Psalm 99 that you are a holy God. You are pure. You are spotless. You are completely other than all other creation. God, you are not like us. We who are finite. God, we who are marred and tainted by our sin. Father, in and of ourselves, before that awesome holiness, God, we are undone. We are Isaiah and Isaiah 6, undone because we are a people of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. Father, without your grace and your faithful covenant love to us, oh God, we are crushed by holiness.
But Father, in your perfect, holy, wise, and sovereign plan of redemption, you have given us Christ. Our rock, our hope, salvation. And God, we are now in Christ able to stand in your holy presence. And so, God, on this morning as we gather together, the praise cannot be directed at us. It must be directed to you. Father, on this day, there can be no glory reserved for us, but all glory is unto your name. Father, as we gather and as we praise, Father, we're thankful, not because in and of ourselves we have done anything, but Father, we are thankful because you have done it all. So God, continue as we worship. God, as we direct our hearts and our gaze toward you on this day. Father, as we seek to hear from your word together. God, show us the beauty of the gospel. Father, show us your greatness as described in your word. Father, draw our hearts, our affections, our desires, O God, toward you. God, I pray for those in the room. They've come this morning, but some of them have come to some degree almost dragging themselves in the door. God, the the week behind was was hard. It was difficult. It it was confusing. Um, They struggled, God, in their own sin and feelings of condemnation and guilt. God, I pray for the discouraged one in the room, oh God, that you would be the lifter of their head. Father, I pray for those in the room that, um, God, are just eagerly expecting uh, all that you have today, and and they're filled with joy, and um, God, they're just delighting in you, oh God, that they would come alongside those that are are maybe a little more weak or discouraged, and God, that they would build up and encourage on this Lord's Day. Father, as we continue to sing God, we join our voices with the hosannas of those in Scripture. Father, we uh, join our voices in the declaration, God, that you are thrice holy. Oh God, so help us to fix our eyes on Jesus today. For he alone is the author, the perfecter of our faith. We ask and we pray these things in his name. Amen. stand as we continue to worship.
Father, you are holy. God, thank you that in your holiness and justice and mercy, Lord, that you saw fit to send your son. Lord, to, to pay the price for our sins. God, thank you for that. Father, I pray that as we come to a time of looking at scripture, God, of memorization, as you call us to hide your word in our heart, Father, that you will, God, help us to do that so that we can, Lord, lean on you in every circumstance. Father, that we can grow in a relationship with you as we memorize scripture and as Pastor Matthew comes to help us through that. And then as Pastor David comes to bring your word and to, to read scripture over us, God, to, to help us learn and grow in a relationship with you. Father, as he comes to teach us that you will give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. God, that we can leave this building better equipped to be your church. So Lord, thank you for this time. Father, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. Month of November, we have been memorizing a verse from Acts 3. And so it should be on the screens here in a second. Just to remind you, as we memorize, we memorize not as, a, as an intellectual exercise, but in an effort, one, to prepare our hearts, to prepare our hearts to hear from the Lord, to to receive his word, but also that it would be a tool of sanctification that God would use to change our desires, to change our soul, to change our patterns in life, that he would bring about fruit in, in, our, in our lives and in our walk with the Lord. And so would encourage you to consider these, these really, this really short verse of scripture, and uh, then we'll pray together before we move into a time of preaching the word. So uh, if you would recite this with me out loud, let's read through it once. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 3.19. So repentance is a change of mind, a change of way of thinking. It's also a change of direction a complete turning, so it's volitional, but it's also something that God does. It's two-sided. In this verse, God is instructing us, telling us, repent, turn away. You do this, repent and turn away, that he will blot out your sins. He is the one, God is the one who removes our sins. We don't. The repentance doesn't do it. It's a work of God. By His grace, He removes, takes away our sin as we repent and turn to Him. And so, as we, as we look at Scripture, may you be reminded of the faithfulness of God. He is faithful to provide. As we just sung, He is holy, perfect in power, perfect in authority. No sin can enter his presence and remain. But in his perfection he purifies. Yet because of the perfect life of Christ, we can know him. 
we can be forgiven and our sins can be blotted out because of him. Therefore, we must repent and turn away from our sin and our selfishness to turn to him to trust in Christ. So if you would pray with me and uh, let's, let's seek this Lord and this God that would encourage us and tell us to repent that he would blot out our transgressions. Father God, I thank you. God, thank you that you... You are truly holy, and we have difficulty defining, attributing who you are, coming to a, an understanding of you, because there's more and more depth, there's more and more that we can go. You continue in your, your just massive, limitless infiniteness. And so, Father, help us this morning, help us to comprehend Lord, who you are. Help us to comprehend the true nature of our sin. That our sin is not simply something that gets us in trouble in this life. But our sin is a crime against you and you are a just and good judge. That your holiness and your perfection necessitates judgment for our sin. And so, Father, help us. Help us to get a glimpse and get an accurate picture of, of our sinful nature and what that does, who we are before you in our sin, that, Lord, we would recognize in fear and in reverence your goodness and your grace and of your justice, and that, God, you would lead us to fear our sin, to fear you and what that sin does, Lord, more than what earthly temporal pleasure we can get. God, may we recognize what you tell us to repent and to turn from our sin and our selfishness, God. And Lord, would you lead us there this morning? Would you lead us in this repentance, recognizing what our sin cost? You sent your Son to save. The second person of the Trinity, God himself, coming to take humanity fully and completely that we would have a Savior. And that you, Father, transferred sin upon him, made him to be sin, that we could receive your righteousness and be made right. We don't deserve it. Jesus is the one. He is the right one. He is the good one. He is the Savior. And yet you impart His reward and His righteousness upon sinful people. God, may we not forget, help us not forget the cost of the atonement of our sin. That it costs the precious blood of Christ. His suffering. His stripes. That by his chastisement, we are given peace. And so, Father, would you help us? Help us this morning to draw near to your throne of grace. May we draw near in Christ, recognizing the cost of our sin and recognizing the, the greatness of your grace and mercy in your Son. And God, would you blot out, would you remove our sin from us, Lord? Would you draw, Lord, our hearts and our desires to be towards you, 
that God, we would, we would richly allow your word to dwell in our hearts, that it would then produce a change of life, a change of desires, rejoicing in you and what you've done and who you are. Lord, would you help us this morning? Would you direct us in this time? God, would you be glorified in this time? May we hear you. May we see you. May we hear from your word of who you are and of your goodness, your love, and your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Matthew, thanks, brother. Let me invite you, church family, to join me in Psalm chapter 95 this morning. Psalm chapter 95 is where we'll be together. We're going to look at the entirety of these 11 verses. And I'm not quite sure how it happened, but Thanksgiving is, uh, is this week, right? Like, it was New Year's yesterday, and now it's Thanksgiving. So quick PSA, get your turkeys out, right? Get those things defrosting. You don't want to mess on a Thursday morning. But here we are, Thanksgiving week. And as we're thinking about this week, as we're thinking about our celebration on Thursday, um, as we're thinking about Thanksgiving, and as we come to look at God's Word together this morning, I want to draw our hearts and our minds for a few moments together into this reality that at the very heart of what we do at Thanksgiving, at the very heart of what you're going to be doing with your families this Thursday, at the very heart of it, should be worship. If in your gathering, in your feasting, in your celebration, if there is no worship, then there is no thanksgiving. Part of my responsibility and hope this morning, though, is to drive our hearts at those things for which we have to be thankful so that that then produces worship in us and it becomes just this cyclical thing that's happening, one spurring on the other, again, in your hearts at all times, certainly as we think about our gatherings this week. At the very heart of what we do this week on Thursday should be that of worship. Every single thing that we do, everywhere we go, every activity, every thought, every aspect of our lives should be centered in and driving toward worship. Every moment of our lives, we should be thinking about it and viewing it as moments that the Lord has given us for worship. And when we realize that, when we realize that every moment that comes to us is a moment from God for the purpose of worship, then worship or thankfulness will not have to be something that we kind of generate in ourselves, kind of work ourselves up toward. It will be something that just naturally flows out of our lives. We won't relegate thankfulness to a a day or a week or just a season, but it'll permeate the very character of who we are, what we do, how we live. And as we look at Psalm 95 this morning, here's here's my hope. I hope that you're overwhelmed. I hope that you look at Psalm 95 and you just walk away thinking, my goodness, there is so much going on in Psalm 95 as it relates to God and his character and his ways toward us that it just leaves you wanting to digest this more and more and more in the coming days so that again, by the time Thursday gets here, your heart that has been so overwhelmed by the word is just overflowing in the giving of thanks. So I want to look at Psalm 95 together. 
I, I want to help us draw a connection between thankfulness and worship. Thankfulness for who God is and thankfulness for what he has done and is doing in our lives. Look at it with me, Psalm 95, starting in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms, for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In whose hand are the depths of the earth? The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter my rest. I hope just by reading that, that you're overwhelmed and that you're just sensing the bigness, the greatness, the grandeur of God and all that there is to be thankful for here in this chapter. Let me draw us, though, if I can, to three reasons from this text, three reasons for why we should praise God, why we should worship. Three reasons for why we should praise God. Number one, verses one to five, we praise God because of his sovereignty. We praise God because of his sovereignty. Verses one to five together. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And even as you just keep letting your eyes fall on those first five verses and and on down to verse six even, you're seeing this constant refrain of, Oh, come, let us. It's a call to the collective people of God. It's a call to every single person in the room who is a, a child of God, born again by the blood of the Lamb, come. And I want us to think about this not so much as an invitation that you can set aside and ignore. I want you to think more of it as a command. The people of God, hey, talking to you, God is saying, come. And that let us is not merely a suggestion of something that we can or can't do. It is a call to us. It is a clarion call, a crystal clear call from God, hey, You people, come here and do these things. And as you're looking at, starting in verse 1, down into verse 2, you're seeing there four uses of that call, let us. So four uses of that, followed by four things that we're called to do together. The people of God are called to come, to behold, and to respond to God for who He is in praise and in worship. And in these first five verses, as we're seeing these let us calls, and then these four things that we're called to do, all of that comes together 
to speak to our hearts and to show us a reality that we are called to praise God because of his sovereignty. Let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us sing for joy. Here's a corporate call to the people of God to sing. Singing, O oh church, is not optional for the believer. We are a singing people. There's a lot of things that define us, that there's a lot of distinctives that we have as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one of those things is that we are a singing people. Every moment of our lives is a moment for singing. And I know this to be true, you know this to be true, because you've read the Psalms. And as you read the Psalms, which remember are songs, so many of them, they find us in every single season of our life, don't they? They find us in the soaring moments of Psalms 95 and 100. But they also find us in the harder moments, the sadder moments of a place like Acts 16.25. You recall Paul and Silas have been beaten and thrown in the Philippian jail and it's midnight and they're doing what? They're singing. They're singing. Because the people of God are a singing people. I have often said, if you squeeze a Christian, a song pops out. When, when life kind of presses in, no matter what that is, and the Christian gets squeezed, one of the things that's just going to naturally flow out of our lives is, is, a, is a song. And again, you know this to be true. In your hardest moments of life, you have found the nearness of God, and you have been able, even through cracking voices and tear-stained faces, to sing, it is well with my soul. You know it to be true that when you're walking with the Lord and communing with Him as you should, you can just be uh, going throughout your day and, and you burst out in a song of praise unto the Lord. In verse 1, O come, people of God, let us sing for joy. We sing with joy. We sing in joy. Joy is the deep-seated condition of the heart that is based in God and not in your circumstances. So don't confuse joy and happiness. Happiness is dictated by your circumstances, right? Everything's going well, you're feeling well, there's plenty of provision, um, you know, you're, you're getting along with people, all of that, you're happy. However, joy, while though happiness does not have to be Absent from joy, joy is rooted in something better and deeper than your circumstances. It's rooted in God. It's a joy in God. It is a delight in God that lets the faintest of smiles cross your lips even as you wipe tears from your eyes. It's joy in God that lets you throw back your head and sing at the top of your lungs on Sunday mornings. It is a joy and a delight in God that causes you to faintly hum while you prepare this Thursday's feast. God is the object of this, is He not, in verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Yahweh, one true and living God, the sovereign creator, omnipotent God, the only God. He is the object of of our singing. When we gather together on the Lord's day and we sing together as this corporate gathered people, God is always the object 
of our praise. Our praise is always flowing from Him and going to Him. The point is never the people on the stage. The point is always God. Charles Spurgeon would say this, that it is to be feared that very much even of religious singing is not unto the Lord, but unto the ear of the congregation. Above all things, we must in our service of song take care that all we offer is with the heart's sincerest and most fervent intent directed towards the Lord himself. Friend, are you a singing people? And as you sing, are you thinking about and directing your praise toward the one true and living God? Oh, come, let us sing for joy. Secondly, here, verse 2, oh, come, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Similar idea of singing, shouting unto the Lord, making our praise known. And again, here the object is God, and here He is called the rock of our salvation. You recall that in Exodus 17, God has saved His people. He brought them out of the land of Egypt. He's brought them through the Red Sea, destroyed the army of Pharaoh behind them. You recall they get out into the wilderness. That's the source of, down in verse 8, their hardness of hearts. They're out in the wilderness, they get thirsty, they forget who God is, they forget the works of God, and they begin to grumble and complain against God. But what does God do in that moment? He saves them, if you will, in their thirst, in their dehydration. He saves them how? By water from a what? From a rock. And the psalmist here in Psalm 95, picking up that language, remembering, no doubt, that moment And calling us to the reality that God is the rock of our salvation. He is the source of our salvation. He is the foundation of our salvation. He is the strong place from which our salvation comes. Here also, in verse 2, we're pointed not only to that moment where Moses causes the water to come from the rock and hence the people of God are saved. But we're also here pointed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're pointed to the reality that it is Jesus who is this rock. Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation. Firmly placed, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. And then, even thinking about that rock in the wilderness of Exodus 17, Paul would say under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, that those people on that day were not drinking just physical water, they were drinking spiritual water, and that rock was Christ. That rock is pointing them the spiritual life that comes only through the precious cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us, verse 2, shout joyfully to Him with psalms. Sorry, beginning of that in verse 2, come before His presence with thanksgiving. Come into His presence, we're called to do, as we worship 
as we sing, as we pray, as we read, as we study our Bibles, we are in God's presence. Because His Spirit indwells the believer. The believer is therefore always in His presence. Therefore, every moment is a moment made for what? In verse 2, thanksgiving. There's never a moment, dear friend, when you are outside the gaze of God. If you are a child of God this morning, His Spirit indwells you. There is never a moment when you are outside of His presence. And so then the constant refrain, the constant call on your life, not just a day, not just a week or a season, but at all times is to come into His presence. A continual praise of thanksgiving. Every moment is a worship-filled moment where we give God thanks for everything that He brings into our lives. And then at the end of verse 2, to shout joyfully to Him with psalms. This call for joyful singing, joyful worship. Why? Why? Well, you could say, well, I guess just because the Bible tells me to, so that's why. But if you look in verse 3, we get here these reasons why we sing and worship. And again, all of them are pointing us to the sovereignty of God. Verse 3, 4, here's why. Because the Lord is a great God. That's why we worship. You need no other reason except that. You need no other motivation except that the Lord, the one true and living God, is a great God. Psalm chapter 48 and verse 1, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in His holy mountain. Church, God is a magnificent, great, bigger than we know or can understand God. He is greater, He is bigger, He is more beautiful, and He is more worthy than we can even fathom. Psalm 145 and verse 3 says that His greatness is unsearchable. You can't mine the depths of how great God is. And one of the things, church, that we're being called to do in this moment of verse 3 as we're thinking about this call that we're supposed to be praising God, directing our worship and our thanksgiving toward Him, church, I would remind us of this this morning, that when we do not know God accurately, we will not worship Him rightly. And if you are going to know God accurately, at least as it relates to verse 3, you must know Him as, as great. Church, God is not like us. God is not our buddy. God is not on our level. God is not our peer. God is God. We, as we'll see in a moment, are His people. He is high. He is exalted. He is big. He alone is great. If you want to worship God rightly then you must understand Him accurately for who He is as described in His Word. And He is the only great and sovereign God. And church, look, if God is not great, then He's not worthy of our praise. 
If God is weak and needs our help on some level, don't sing. If God is like us and learns things on the fly, don't shout. If God is limited by time or by space, don't waste your time worshiping. However, if God is great, let's just say in his omnipotence and needs nobody's help, then sing, church. If God is great in his omniscience and he knows all things perfectly well, then shout unto him. If God is great in his omnipresence and is not limited in any capacity by time or space, then worship his name, church. God is great in his very essence. Not just merely in what he does, although he is great in that, but beginning Beginning with, God is great in His very essence. He is, in verse 3, a great king above all gods. God is sovereign over all rulers. He is sovereign in His essence at the beginning of verse 3, and at the end of verse 3, He's sovereign in His kingly rule and reign over all other gods. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. Isaiah 44, verse 8, Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I love what God says here. I know of none. There is no one. Isaiah 45 and verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. All gods, all rulers, all kings, all earthly sovereigns bow the knee before the great, one, true, and living sovereign God. I love how this gets illustrated for us. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. You don't have to turn there. You may want to take a look at it later. Because if nothing else, it will bring a smile to your face. The Philistines have captured the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they take it to their capital city. And they put it in their temple to their chief god, Dagon. So they have this statue of their god, Dagon, is there in their, uh, their pagan temple, and they think, yeah, what's another religious uh, relic here? We'll bring that in and set it in here. The problem is they come back in the next morning, and their chief god, Dagon, has been tumbled over. Its arms and its legs have been broken off, and there's just the torso left, and the torso is face down before the Ark of the Covenant of God. There are no other gods besides Yahweh. And friend, I would also just remind you in your heart and in your life this morning, that same sovereign God of 1 Samuel 5, the same sovereign God of Psalm 95 is the same sovereign God who rules and reigns today. And in your life, in your life, He will have no other God. He is holy in His jealousy. And he demands of us that we give allegiance and praise, certainly not to ourselves, to no other God but him. Look in verses 4 and 5. 
Here we're seeing that God is sovereign over creation, therefore worthy of our praise, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are His also. The sea, it's His. For it was He who made it, and His hands formed the dry land. We worship because God is sovereign. And in verses 4 and 5, we see Him in absolute rule and reign over all creation. God is the pre-existent, self-sufficient, eternal God who made all things by the word of His power. Holds together all things By the word of His power. He is the God who created out of nothing. And when you then are the pre-existent, self-sufficient, sovereign creator God and you make things, they then belong to you. They are yours. That's why you see that language of ownership in verses 4 and 5. All creation, beloved, including my life, your lives, the life of this church body, we are His. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch reformer, said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Now look, when your two-year-old does that at home, mine, that's driven from a place of sinful selfishness, right? But when you are the one true and living God, pre-existent, self-sufficient, and you create all things, you get to say mine. And then call all creation to praise you for your sovereignty over all things. Then, secondly, verses 6 and 7, why? Why sing? Why shout? Why worship? Why praise? Secondly, we praise God Verse 6, beginning of verse 7, because He is our shepherd. We praise God because He is our shepherd. This great, magnificent, holy God draws near to us, takes us in the palm of His hand, and makes us the sheep of His pasture. What a mystery of all mysteries, church. What a reason for thankful praise unto God. Look in verse 6. Come, here's that call again. You can't escape this. You are not an entity and an, on an island by yourself. You're called to come, O people. Come before God. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Do you notice the posture of worshipers in verse 6? Notice the language here. Come, let us Worship. The word worship there, it means to prostrate oneself on the ground before God. Come, let us bow down, verse 6. Let us kneel, 
verse 6. Those words, bow down and kneel, very similar words that mean to bend the knee in a posture before this great God. Humility is what marks the life of the true worshiper who understands God's greatness and what God has done for them. Humility, bowing low. That, that may very well mean that in your, in your time with the Lord, you find yourself maybe on your knees in a physical posture of humility. But, but the greater point here, beloved, is that every single moment of every single day, our hearts are postured low in humility before this great God. How, how can we look at the greatness of God in a place like Psalm 95 and then strut around our lives like we're the biggest deal in reality in the room? Uh, Jared Wilson, faithful pastor, um, has said this, I just love this, that some of us need to have the swagger gospeled out of us. We need to be reminded of the greatness and the holiness of God and what He has done for us in Christ and remembering that if He had not done it, we would not be saved. And if those things be true, beloved, how can we, how can we strut about as though we are the biggest reality in the room? We're called to prostrate ourselves, verse 6, to bow, to kneel before God. Our worship and every aspect of our lives is to be lived in humility before God. Look in verse 6, let us kneel before the Lord our what? Our maker, he made us, he shaped us, he fashioned us. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, all things have been created by him and for him. We exist, beloved, for him. Listen to this out of 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7, who regards you as superior And what do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? I love that verse because it's always just calling my heart back to a place of gospel humility. What do I have that I was not first given by a gracious sovereign and holy God and if I have been given it and I didn't earn it I didn't accomplish this on my own if I receive this then I simply cannot boast as though I did not receive it It just keeps us so humble before this great God verse 7 watch that 4 because here's why In this section, here's why we worship, bow down, kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. Do you see how this great God of verse 3 has come near to us? This vast, unknowable God, this transcendent God has become near and imminent. And now he has drawn us into a relationship with him, right? He is our God. God. What does Psalm 23, 1 say? It's comforted your hearts a thousand times over the years. What? The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. In verse 7, He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Here, this great God has drawn near in tenderness 
and in quietness, closeness to our hearts and our lives. He is our shepherd, and as our shepherd, He leads us. He nourishes and restores us. He's near to us in trouble. He protects us in our danger. He is gentle toward us. He secures His sheep. He searches for His sheep and brings them to Himself. John chapter 10, verse 11, He lays down His life for the sheep. He is our good, constant, perfect shepherd. And we are the sheep of His hand. It might recall to your mind that language from John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, where Jesus says, My sheep know my voice. I'm near to them. I'm their shepherd. And I hold them in the very palm of my hand. And God, who is greater than all, holds them in the palm of His hand. We are in God's hand, dear church. There's nothing that happens to you, but it does not come first through the hand of God to you. We worship, we praise God because He is our shepherd. And then finally, we praise God because He has provided us rest. We praise God for He has provided us Rest. Now, in the second half of verse 7, down through verse 11, there comes a warning. There comes a warning, but there also comes implicitly in this the third reason that we have to praise God, for He has provided us rest. Look at the second half of verse 7. Today, if you would hear His voice. How do we hear God's voice? Church, we hear it through His Word. We hear God's voice through His Word. Someone has jokingly, but maybe to some degree very seriously said, if you want to hear God's voice, read His Word. If you want to hear God's voice out loud, read His Word out loud. For this is how God spoken to us. Right now, in this moment, as your eyes fall upon the text of Scripture, that is God speaking to you. It, it, it reminds me of my responsibility as a, as a shepherd in this moment, as a preacher in this moment, that if that be true, I better say to you what God has said in His Word. For when God speaks, His Word speaks. So today, if you would hear His voice, You would hear the word of the Lord today. Do not, verse 8, harden your hearts as at Meribah and in the days of Massa. What does it mean to harden your hearts? Well, we're hardening our hearts against the voice or the word of God. So then to harden your hearts means to not hear God's word, to not receive God's word, to not act upon God's word, to hear the word of God and not be moved by it. And that word harden there in verse 8. This is not an accidental thing that might happen to you. It is a purposeful, intentional thing because that word harden, it means to be difficult, to be stubborn, to be obstinate. You ever looked at someone and said, why do you have to be so difficult? That's the idea here. Have you ever asked your own heart, why, heart, why do you have to be so obstinate? Why do you have to be so difficult and stubborn, oh my soul? 
And here in verse 8, we're again being pointed back to a historical moment of Exodus chapter 17. The people of God have come out of Egypt. They've crossed through the Red Sea with their shoes not even getting muddy. The army of Pharaoh has been destroyed and they come to a place called Rephidim and they're thirsty. And look, it's a real problem. There are somewhere upwards of 2 million-ish people, and they're out in the wilderness, and there's no water. There are older people with them. There are young babies with them. It's a real circumstance. This is real life stuff. They grow thirsty, and they look around, and they're in the wilderness. There's no water, and so they begin to grumble. They grumble against Moses. They accuse him of bringing them out in the wilderness to kill them. Moses reminds them, hey, look, you're not ultimately grumbling against me. You're grumbling against God. You're testing God in this moment. You are not remembering. Look down to the end. uh, Look down to verse 10 or the end of verse 9. You had seen my work and yet you have forgotten. And now in this moment, you've hardened your hearts and you call me in to question. You doubt my wisdom. You doubt my power. You doubt my love and my care for you, even though I have evidenced it a thousand times over in the Exodus. And your heart has grown hard against me. The need that you see has become greater in your eyes than I am. The problem that you're dealing with here has dulled you, hardened you to the reality of who I am and how I come near to you as your shepherd. So Moses will name, rename that place Rephidim. He'll rename it Masa and Meribah. The name Masa meaning to quarrel, Meribah meaning to test. They've forgotten. They have hardened their hearts. What is God's response? Verses 9 and 10. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Verse 10 is an explanation of God's disposition toward his people who rebelled at him at Rephidim and throughout their wilderness wanderings. And notice this final warning in verse 11. Therefore, because of their rebellion, because of their hardening of heart, therefore, God speaking, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. And you recall that those rebellious and hard Hebrews who would not hear the voice of God They would not act upon the word of God. You recall what happened to them. That they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, never seeing the promised land. Dying in the wilderness, not receiving the rest of that land flowing with milk and honey of Canaan. And church, just as it was true for those In Moses' day, in the Exodus, so today, all who harden their hearts against God, all who refuse to hear and respond to the voice of God, all who reject 
God's salvation through Jesus Christ, they will not enter God's rest. Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. I want you just to put your eyes on this for a moment. And I hope maybe even this week you'll go back and look at Hebrews 4 and everything that's taking place here. I want you to watch the line that is being drawn between the language of God's rest in Canaan and the rest that is ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Therefore, let us fear, if all a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also, they referring to the Hebrews of old. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as has been said before, today if you harden his voice, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. The rest of Canaan in the Old Testament is always screaming at us, pointing us forward to a final and glorious eternal rest that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Where we rest from our wearying labor of trying to make ourselves right with God through our own works. And we come to Jesus and we receive the rest, the eternal rest in Him. So let me say two things to two different groups of people. If you're a Christian in the room, why do you praise God? Because you have been given rest in Christ. Guys, when you put turkey into your mouth on Thursday, and as you feast and as you celebrate, remember that all earthly feastings are a foretaste of an eternal feasting, right? So listen, eat, drink, and be merry to the glory of God. But as you do so, worship by remembering that you have been given rest in Christ. Remember the gospel as you eat your turkey on Thursday. Call your family to worship. Why? Well, God is great, and He is our shepherd, because He has given us rest in Christ. So you no longer have to weary yourselves to make yourselves right with God. You're in Christ. But also, if you're here today, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, 
Maybe you're not sure where you stand in a relationship with God. Do not harden your hearts. Listen to the voice of God in his word. Hear it. Don't be stubborn. Don't be obstinate. Don't push or kick against the goads here. Receive it. There will be no rest for you until you do. There will be no land flowing with milk and honey for you until you come in repentance of sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 95 calls us to praise God for His sovereignty because He's our shepherd, because He has provided rest in Christ. And when we set our eyes on who God is in Psalm 95, it's going to produce joyful, thankful worship in you. Today, this week, Thursday, this season, every day, every moment of your lives. How do you need to respond to this this morning? Have you begun to doubt certain aspects of God, but yet here in His Word we've seen so clearly who He is? Maybe you have forgotten the faithfulness of God to you over the years. And the Spirit's work in you this morning just needs to be to remind you of who God is and what He has done for you. Again, maybe you don't know Christ and you need to come to Him this day. So we're going to pray together. We're going to sing in response to the Word of God together. And there is a call to all of us to come, let us. How do you need to respond to the Word of God together this morning? Let's do that together. Father, there is so much in Psalm 95 to consider. Father, just aspects of your your nature, which we can't fully exhaust. Father, the nearness of you, our shepherd. God, the rest that has been afforded to us by your gracious hand in Christ. Father, maybe it's that we have become puffed up. We've begun to strut about because of things that we know, experiences that we've had, maybe some, some victories over sin that we've experienced. And God, maybe our response today just needs to bow before you. Maybe to confess and repent of just a pride that has been permeating aspects of our lives. God, we cannot... We cannot strut about in our hearts when we see you for who you are in your word. So, oh God, humble us. However it is that we need to respond, oh God, cause your spirit to move and to work in us so that we would be those who delight in you And that one of those joyful delights is just obedience, oh God, to what your word calls us to do. God, thank you that you don't receive us on the merit of our obedience. But, oh God, as your people, help us to delight in living out what we say we believe. God, move among the hearts of people. Sanctify them. Draw them to yourself. Save them, oh God. 
We ask and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.